Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mr. John Quigley, a remarkable activist, environmentalist, and thought leader. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ecoflix podcast. I'm excited today to have the opportunity to speak with Mr. John Quigley. I would characterize him as an activist, an environmentalist, a multi-threat artist, and a thought leader. John, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know you're traveling, so it's a, a burden, and I appreciate it very much. Well, th thank you, David. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, so I'm uh, happy to be here, and I love your background today. Yeah, it's well, quite... <laughs> we'll get to that, because uh, yeah. you, you may know a little about that subject. But if I yeah. can, I'd like to sort of tiptoe across the top of some of your really remarkable accomplishments and impacts uh, in no particular order. I want people to understand really who you are before we get into them. And then I want to talk about some of them in greater detail. But you're the founding director of Artists for Amazonia. You're a board member of the Environmental Media Association, or EMA. You're a board member of the Whaleman Foundation. You're the executive producer of the Artists United for Amazonia Livestream, which and many people will remember featured icons like Barbara Streisand, Jane Goodall, Sting, Jeff Bridges, Jane Fonda, Greta Thunberg. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, and in response to the BP oil spill years ago, you co-founded counterspill.org, which won multiple Webby Awards for activism and environment and a People's Choice Award for activism. And then you founded something unusual and remarkable called Spectrum Q, which I'm looking forward to talking about, which as I understand it is pioneering a rather unique art form. You blend humans and aerial photography to create in this, in your history already, over 200 large scale messages for the common good involving over 200,000 people on seven continents. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, you've hmm. worked with virtually every major environmental organization in the United States, having served on the national and international boards for Earth Day. Every spring, you take kids to the beach in Los Angeles to educate them about storm drains. And yet, some might say that your most memorable impact involved a tree, climbing an amazing <laughs> tree which, as we've already alluded to, inspired my visual background for the show. Uh, and the tree you climbed was called Old Glory. I'd love it if we could start there. You had your 20-year reunion earlier this year. Uh, people would love to hear the background behind this and what you did. I don't, I'll let you tell them what you did. Well, uh, David, it's it's really a magical story, not just about what I did, but about uh, about what many people did um, that helped save this magnificent champion 
heritage oak tree, a, a mother tree estimated to be over 400 years old uh, that was going to be pushed over by a bulldozer and cut into firewood about 30 minutes before I got into the tree. And it's, it's, it's really an example of how the most precious things amongst us uh, were losing because people just aren't aware or they don't care or they're not willing to stand up. And it's been a long road with old glory, but on um, November 1st, 2002, I climbed into the branches of this tree, fully expecting to be, you know, dragged out of the tree, arrested, called all kinds of names, which did happen, <laughs> the name calling. But instead, it, it really touched a nerve within the community in northern L.A. County where people had moved out there to be with nature. And within a year, the nature around them was being bulldozed for new homes, new development. And so what is known as a conservative community rallied around this guy in a tree. And it, it just became a phenomenon where the news was covering it every news cycle and the big public debate about saving the tree or cutting the tree happened. And we were fortunate that with the help of many, many people, uh, the, the tree was saved at that moment. It was moved. It was the largest tree ever moved. I believe it's in the Guinness Book of World Records. We'll have to fact check that. I know that the local county supervisor referenced that uh, in a news article just this weekend. But it was, uh, but for 20 years, I was not willing to say that the tree was going to survive because we all know when you transplant trees, the success rate is not great. And I will say the one thing that we did well is we put so much pressure on the authorities to make sure the tree survived that they gave it 10 years of aftercare. And that's really the key. But, it, but at the end of the day, the tree is alive. She's magnificent. For those of you, if you're if you're coming up to Santa Clarita, you can do, I think you can just go onto Google Maps and punch an old glory oak tree and it'll show you where it is. But it's at the corner of uh, Pico Canyon Road and McBean Parkway. Magnificent valley oak, older than our country. And for me, in addition to having this incredible feeling of being part of saving this magnificent life, it was a bit of a rite of passage for me because what happened there was something larger than I could have ever imagined. There was some higher power at work with all of the things that just came together. The group of people from across the political spectrum uh, who united behind this tree. And I think it showed that there was a hunger for us to unite and for us to honor and respect our elders and honor and respect our natural heritage, which is really what the wealth and abundance of America is all based on. It's, it's the land, it's the trees, it's the water. These are the building blocks for the American dream. And the name Old Glory, we didn't, you know, at first people were like, well, what's the tree's name? And I was like, I'm not sure, hasn't come to me yet. We even held a rally. Uh, to name the tree and all the names that people said, it wasn't 
they weren't quite right. And then I got this letter in a red envelope from two local kids who said, we call the tree old glory because she stands there in all her majesty and glory representing all the trees that have already been cut down. And please, please, can you find a way to save, save her? So that name stuck. And, uh, it, uh, you know, it's one of those stories that brings a smile to people's faces about what's possible in America. And, and we're living in such divided times now that I think we could learn a lot from how people from across, across the board join together to save, save this magnificent tree. Yeah, it's so true. And you, 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 you tell the story so well, and yet you kind of tiptoe across the top of it. You didn't just climb the tree. You spent 71 days in the tree. That's a little bit different story. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I basically launched the tree, Sid, and I was there for, you know, all of the key moments over the span of that 71 days. There were a few moments where it became clear that they were going to try to attack me and make it about me. So we started reaching out to the community and saying, hey, let's make this a community tree sit. So there were some others who came and joined at times. Daryl Hanna being one of them. What's that? Daryl Hanna being one of them. Well, no, Daryl was in the next tree sit, oh. which, was at, which was at the South Central Farm, which was a couple years later. Uh, uh, we we can go to that story in a second, <laughs> but I did I I was blessed to live on a branch of a tree with Daryl for three weeks um, <laughs> a few years later. But yeah, so so the main thing was, um, it's true. I was in the tree for some brutal storms, for threats from the police to use chemical agents on me, the sheriffs and. And also threats from the community, people firing a gun over my head, blowing up a mailbox. It was it was controversial at the time. Very much. And, Very much. and what I saw was it's a pretty simple thing. We have a tree that's older than our country. Why would it why would we have it be destroyed for the greed of a developer or for politicians in the county who um who don't have enough imagination to understand that there is a way to develop where you honor our natural heritage and don't just bulldoze it. In fact, at that time, I kind of declared it bulldozer development, this kind of etch-a-sketch, just erase everything and then build for efficiency. And I think that we're still dealing with that, that issue 20 years later. And the irony is, is that this road that they were so desperate to expand and extend, if you go there today, it extends a grand total of two or 300 meters. 20 years later, that's as far as that road extension goes. So it, it comes down to this kind of mechanical, unconscious thinking with our planning that, well, this is the way we do it, and that's just got to be the way that it is. And I think what happened is by climbing into that tree, and there were a lot of things going on in my life at that moment where my dad was potentially going to die, be at a back operation that was didn't go well. And so he was under grave threat. My goddaughter was having a cancer operation on her lung and she wasn't given long to live. There was just so many things around me 
where people were on the verge of death when this call came out to help climb into this tree to help save it i just thought you know what i just want to i just want to keep something alive i just want to keep something alive so and it just turned out that i had the right skills because it's one thing to climb into a tree but it's a completely different thing to climb into a tree and know how to stay there and you learned that from other experiences well, I had in the mid nineties, I had traveled up to the Great Bear Rainforest and um, I was blessed to work with the Newhawk Nation defending their ancestral lands. And I was trained, um, I was trained how to defend trees, how to go high enough how, and do it nonviolently. You know, that's, that's a key factor is you, uh, it's really important to hold that ethic when you're standing for a principle like our natural heritage the future of our country and all of that. But there are things you can do tactically to make it difficult for people who want to destroy things to go ahead and destroy those things. So I had learned um, uh, how to do that and how to bring provisions up a tree for a week with the idea that if you can stay up in a tree for a week, at some point you can find a way to get resupplied. And in the case of Old Glory, not only did, did I get resupplied, I got so many supplies that we started giving away food to homeless shelters. I, there was no way I could possibly eat all the food that people were bringing me. And um, they they started a sign-up sheet and you know, people would drive by on a Tuesday and say, hey, I'm bringing you dinner on Friday, you know? And it was, it was really a little bit of a, it's a wonderful life kind of vibe, yeah. you know, where things you know one day the mailman showed up with mail for the tree and there happened to be an la times reporter there in that moment and um so they wrote it in an article and then letters started coming in from around the world uh and they put up uh the, the supporters on the ground they put up this uh like a mailbox a postal box and i used to love to read these letters from from everywhere just about way to go let's save that tree and you had just plenty of time you. You, had plenty What's of that? you had plenty of time well you know you think that but and i would say the first couple of weeks when things were relatively quiet i would read books you know and then in the morning you'd have this line of cars once word got out that there was a man in the tree all the kids from the neighborhood came down and said hey tree man what are you doing and then every morning on their way to school there'd be this long line of cars and the cars would pull up one by one and a kid would reach out of the back window and say hey tree man good morning and i'd be like you do well in school listen to that teacher of yours you know and every day so like and but then once that the rush hour for school was done i would have time to read you know when things were calm with the police and with negotiations and then the same thing at the end of the school day there would be another procession with kids coming home from school so and that was a great joy and there were four eight-year-olds in particular who made me promise to save the tree and not come out of the tree unless they drag me out and all that. So that, that was the first couple of weeks. But then when they came the second time to really cut the tree, it became kind of like a SWAT operation. 
there were like 14 sheriff's cars, something like that. The fire chief was there with the fire truck. And it was a very tense situation. And at that point, I was spending most of my time doing interviews and having strategy calls, negotiating calls. So there was not a whole lot of time to just kick back and read stuff mm. from that point forward. It was pretty hectic. I mean, there were there were moments for sure, but it wasn't, there was always someone coming and we would have on the weekends, sometimes we'd have a thousand people come and visit tree you know <laughs> we would it was it was really it became this sort of focal point almost like a town hall meeting where people would come and just talk about the state of america and what's happening with the tree and it was really quite remarkable and the ground crew but yeah here's the interesting thing david everything they tried to do to get me out of the tree totally backfired so when they showed up that day i think it was day 13 Three women and one of the women's daughters stood in front of the tree and said, if you want to arrest him, you're going to have to arrest us first. <laughs> These heroic women. And then so the, the, the sheriffs backed off and they said, OK, we're, we're going to put a fence around the tree. I think it was three o'clock that day, three or four o'clock that day. Everyone inside the fence is subject to arrest. So they built this fence to keep supporters away from the tree. And then they they had a a guard there that hired by the company, but the guard, his name was Romeo. He, he ended up being my bouncer. Like when someone would come to the tree, but like, Hey, John, this guy, cool. You know, like, and, and so, and then they put up these big spotlights to try to get, get me to not be able to sleep. But what they didn't realize is I can sleep through anything. <laughs> and secondly, it illuminated the tree so beautifully on TV that everyone fell in love with the tree. And so everything, it was, you know, and I think it's a good example of when people are doing the wrong thing, they just are compounding it and compounding it and compounding it by trying all of these tactics. And they just, it just kept backfiring yeah. and support for the tree grew. And, um, you know, we were fortunate um, to just navigate through it all. As you can see, it brings me joy to, to remember the story because I feel like I saw the best in people. I feel like I saw our higher angels at work. Yeah. And I know that you know the news from this week, uh, which for me is very sweet, which is that the county supervisor from the office that was fighting me and attacking me 20 years ago, it's a different politician, but uh, the same political office, filed a motion that was passed unanimously yesterday by consent at the LA County Board of Supervisors to declare Old Glory a historic landmark in LA County and which would provide it protections in perpetuity. And so for me to just think about those times I'm freezing in that tree and yeah. you're trying to attack me in the press and call me crazy and all that, and now tw a little over 20 years later, they're basically acknowledging the importance of this being, this, this tree, to the community. And, and, and they're the ones advocating that we need to be good environmental stewards. So it took 20 plus years. But I, all I know is I can still go sit under the branches of that oak tree, feel that 
wisdom that I was blessed to be so present with for all those days in the tree. And uh, I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful. Well, and of course, you were quoted at the time as saying it's a privilege to defend a tree. And oh, yeah, I think, you know, for people whose heart is in the environment, we all get that. I mean, that, of course, of course, it's a privilege. And of course, it's a wonderful thing to protect trees. And for those who really care, I mean, you're undoubtedly familiar with the mycorrhizal network and how trees oh, yes. through fungi communicate with their young, communicate with others. Uh, trees around them. I mean, it is a very significant life form. And we certainly ha have not kept enough humility of our own limitations to understand that we don't really understand even trees, let alone most of the other things that live. So when you said that trees have feelings, that caused a big stir at the time too. Yeah, And, you know, it's now because there was no knowledge about the fungal networks that you know, connected all these living things underground. I mean, fields of plants like tobacco, they'll be attacked by a predator and they will send out pheromones to attract, and all of them together through communication will do it, to attract the mortal enemy of the predator. And the, the enemy of the predator is their friend and there you go. So they it's all communication on a level we never knew existed. And trees, right. I mean, literally with their own young falling and growing and they send them sugars and nutrients from the sap. I mean, you were ahead of your time in some ways, but I think you were right on time in the case of Old Glory. So it's, mm. it's a fantastic story the way it evolved, but it's by no means all you've been doing for oh, many years. So. Let, let, let's go to this spring trip to the beach uh, in Los Angeles. Oh, tell me about those. Well, this started, this was a collaboration with Michael Klubach, who um, is uh, of the Malibu Foundation for Environmental Education. He was a sailor who uh, he decided he wanted to bring kids to the beach, uh, especially kids who had never been to the beach before. And then we were, we knew each other and we agreed that, that, my team would come and help promote what they were doing and be part of it. This is back in 1994. And that developed into a program called Kids Ocean Day. And about a week before that first event, I suddenly had this idea of what if the kids all after they clean the beach. So it's, you know, they experience the ocean, but it's also teaching them about marine debris. And Michael does an education program in schools and then others have done that now it's in five cities along the california coast i i did the assemblies for a while in san francisco uh but then the culmination of it is for them to actually come to the beach be in the environment see the trash clean the trash but also experience the fun and joy of being at the beach and uh but, but about a week before the first one i got this idea well, what if we got the coast guard to let us have their helicopter for us to go over and take a photo of the kids spelling out clean up LA with their bodies. <laughs> There's a couple thousand kids. I'd never done it before. No one really knew it was going to happen. The volunteers didn't really know because it was all happening so fast and it was just mayhem, but we managed to get the photograph and it was on the TV news and the LA times called it living letters in the sand. And, um, 
and it's began a tradition that is now almost 30 years old and we've done oh like 130 of these up and down the coast and also in hong kong and in mexico and the idea is it's you know the 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 photograph and the the kids encouraging them to think of themselves as artists it kind of seals in the experience like for many of the kids it's the first time they're on the news or in a photo on the wall of the school and it became a medium that for me I started doing on other issues around the world that this is where it started with kids in California. But then I was doing things at the United Nations in New York, uh, around the world on a variety of issues, almost all environmental, but some social justice, human rights, freedom and democracy issues. So it's really based on the idea of people coming together to embody a message, an artistic message on a grand scale that is photographed from above. And um, it's been, I don't even know how many people have seen the work. I know it's at least in the hundreds of millions because of all the media that it's it's generated. But it became a, an incredible tool for people to creatively express themselves, uh, you know, as opposed to going to a street protest or something like that. It, it's something where everyone comes together and we, we literally could not create it without every single individual. Right. You know, it, they they become messengers for the cause and for the issue, and no one ever gets paid to do it. So they have to believe enough in the message to participate. And that was that was one of part of my code of ethics at the beginning is that this, these are not extras on a film shoot. These are people who feel passionately enough about the ocean, about a forest, about democracy, about freedom, that they're willing to come and spend their time in this giant formation while it's being photographed. And uh, and there have been hundreds of thousands of people who've done that all over the world. Right. This is Spectral Q. This is Spectral Q. Yeah. And yeah, it's a, I call it colla collaborative art for the common good. Right. And it's, again, incredibly unique. There's nobody else doing anything quite like it. I guess there's other art forms, but they don't use people primarily. The, there are some creative artists who uh, take over areas and drape them and do other things. But this is um, a great crossover between people and art uh, for the well, good I think, planet. Yeah, in fairness, there are some who work with people in, a, in different ways. But I would say what Spectre Q did really took to another level the idea of bringing people together for activism and sending a unified message it, you know it's really political art if you will but it's political art based on our highest ideals and that is something that's really important and also this idea that it's co a co-creation like i'm not just there as the artist dictating what everyone does you know the whole process of coming up with the artwork coming up with the messaging is collaborative with the people who are working on those issues. And, uh, you know, the idea is to have a sense of co-ownership and co-creation over the process. And I think that, you know, it, because it was so effective and the particular way that I do it and being able to create at a large scale very quickly, uh, people were able to use it in a lot of formats. And most of the communities use it, utilizing spectral cue aerial art 
they might be going up against huge companies, oil companies, mining companies, governments, militaries who have funding to do advertising to get their message out in other ways. I remember one year in Ecuador doing a piece with indigenous people and campesinos who had been affected by the rainforest Chernobyl left behind by Chevron. And um, there was a huge advertising campaign trying against them. And we did a piece uh, at the first oil well drilled in northern Ecuador that then went all over Ecuador as a counterpoint. So it was a way for communities who didn't have the resources um, to send a message about what they cared about and what was affecting them. And that is something that I, you know, I guess I, I like supporting the underdogs, particularly because everyone who's protecting nature is, uh, nature is pretty much the underdog. And for a while, as I was traveling around the world, basically where I went and did a message meant that that was an area where the people and the land and the ecosystem were under dire threat. And, you know, and we've had some big successes where things, uh, you know, helped turn issues around or at least created momentum in the other direction. So I, I would just say for anyone who might be listening to this, there is a personal medicine that comes with raising your voice about an injustice or or just about something you care about and you see happening that you don't think should be happening. Or, and, and it doesn't always have to be in the negative in reaction to things. It can be proactive and positive about the world you want to see. But when you when you act from that place, there are so many gifts that come that you could never expect. It's not transactional in the same way most of the world is where you do this do this amount of work and you get this amount of money or this or that there's a you know passionate work passionate acts of conscience bring unforeseen beauty into your life and especially if you feel in a rut or you feel like you know it's so crazy going on social media or reading the news uh, I did a TEDx talk a few years ago talking about creative activation and creative expression as or or the creative response to the world around us, that that is what will heal us. When we are activated creatively and, and engaged in that creative process to make the world a better place, it actually makes us feel better. And that so that's a big part of and spectral cue. And these images are kind of an entry-level experience for people. There's a lot of people who have been in spectral cue aerial art who wouldn't go to a street protest. You know, we used to talk about mothers with baby strollers. Is it something that they could come to and, uh, you know, feel good about what's happening? And and just everyone actually across the multi-generational spectrum, across the cultural, racial, spiritual spectrum, are work with spectral cue is based on the what at least from my perspective are the highest ideals of humanity inclusivity truth honesty creative expression love beauty i remember bringing it back to old glory the fence that they built to try to keep people out from being 
supporters of mine. It ended up becoming a shrine where kids put up their their art, uh, advocating for saving the tree. And it was really there was Tom Barron and his his wife. Um, they did an incredible job orchestrating this scene where people would come and seemed like every week was kind of like at school. Okay. This week it's this theme and that week is that thing, that theme, but so many people were bringing things. And one of the signs on the fence that struck me, and this was in the buildup to the Iraq war. So that the drum beat for war was happening. It said, in such an ugly time, beauty is the best protest. And I think um, I think Spectral Q was really about using beauty as much as possible to communicate urgent messages. Yeah, it's an incredibly creative form of activism, environmentalism that um, inspires people in a place that they have never been inspired before and in a way that draws their attention. It's it's kind of a perfect thing and pretty remarkable, not only that you've come up with it, but that you've expanded it across the world this way and in such a remarkable uh, showing of love for the planet and creativity. It's, it's kind of brilliant. Um, mm. So back to brilliant, let's uh, try another one. The British Petroleum Oil Spill. You found oh. counterspill.org. Tell us about that. Well, this was with my colleague, Chris Payne, who's a, a renowned uh, documentary filmmaker. He did films like Who Killed the Electric Car, Revenge of the Electric Car, uh, that some of the titles, uh, Do You Trust This Computer? And he and I were both down there around the time. I actually did a Spectral Q aerial image in Grand Isle, Louisiana, with shrimpers and crabbers and fishermen who didn't really know who I was. They just really wanted to make a statement because they could see the oil hadn't even hit yet, but they could see it coming and they knew that it was going to completely destroy their way, way of life. And, um, and so the message they wanted to send was paradise lost. And then we morphed it into never again. So I was down there doing that. And Chris was there with a bunch of other people, you know, trying to address the situation and we came together around this idea of countering the um the spin of bp because when when i was down there everything was being run by bp i mean bp actually was running the show all the recovery efforts all the cleanup efforts more so than the u.s government at least as far as i could tell and so he was able to secure some funding and we worked and together and brought in a team, really a top uh, web team to develop Counterspill, which archived uh, uh, a little over a hundred years of energy related disasters. Uh, and by the time we were able to get it up and running, it was a beautiful site, a, a really a key tool. The well had been capped. And so that moment, that political moment was no longer as urgent. And so this is something where it's been sitting there for a while. We'd really love someone to take it and make use of it in real time again, as we did back in the day. And uh, but that that was just brutal. 
that was just brutal seeing what was happening there with the oil spill and the the effect on the communities across the board it didn't matter you know the old political spectrum of left right didn't matter in the face of that contamination so um yeah i mean i I, w- I would say that for me my life's mission has been just constantly doing my best to meet the moment of where can i do the most good uh for the earth that's i think that's really what makes my heart beat is that i grew up next to a woods I walked through that woods every day of my life to school. I basically was in that woods pretty much every day of my childhood. And then later I was blessed to to live uh, both in Hawaii and in California on the Pacific Ocean and surf most days. So I've spent a lot of time in nature and that's where I feel most fully alive. And I feel like in this technological world that we've evolved into, People are losing touch with nature. And to me, the medicine for what ails us is reconnecting with nature and creative activation. Those two things combined bring us fully alive. And that's, you know, coming full circle to old glory. It's one tree. I used to get this question. Well, it's one tree. It's one tree, but it's a tree that I know. And it's a tree that many, many people know and they care about. And it also represents all trees in a way. You know, if you value, or or let me put it another way, if you can't value the oldest tree in that whole area, a champion tree, a mother tree, a heritage tree, older than our country, how are you going to value other types of nature that are the basis of our own life? And so I'm I'm hoping now that it looks like Old Glory will become a historic landmark, that the story of Old Glory will help save other trees in the planning process, that they will be valued. And I know at that time, 20 years ago, it really shifted things. Um, and you mentioned, it's funny, I was telling this story today, you mentioned Daryl Hannah. A few years later, we were living in these trees, these walnut trees at the South Central Farm. And the day that she and I were arrested, um, they were threatening to cut these trees. But what stopped them from cutting the trees was that a new law had been implemented in Los Angeles after the Old Glory tree sit that protected walnut trees. And so the owner decided not to cut the trees because he would face stiffer fines because these were now protected trees. So that the ripple effect from one tree sit to another actually saved a couple more trees there. You know, there's such a story about how we have decimated the wild spaces in the planet. And it's harder and harder for people to find such places. And when you are out there and there's quiet and you start to get in touch with the things that are around you and you hear the sounds of nature, it evokes things inside of you that have been sort of buried for a long time. They literally come to life uh, Mm. like organisms that live in the mud until the rain comes. And then all of a sudden they pop to life. I mean, if anybody gets a chance to go to Africa and spend time in Mm. a wilderness place, 
it's in your heart. You take it with you wherever you go. You can't ever forget it. And I think that's true of most places. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up just outside Washington, D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. Right. So, and, yeah. Yeah, that's a very, there's a lot of trees there. And I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And when I was a kid, there are lots of trees there. And there's a, there is a connection that comes from literally sitting, like you're talking about, just sitting under a tree. I mean, you can talk to the tree and somehow you feel like it's listening. Uh, there's, mm. It's hard to explain that um, people who really value life see it in, in many forms and it's not just other people. And when you see an ecosystem and you find out how important, for example, trees are, the ecosystems, it's just hard to deny that they are a vital part of the planet that we need. And of course, then you get into sequestering carbon and you realize that if there weren't trees, probably we wouldn't be here. So it's just, there's just a lot of connections that people lose sight of because we're like this, worrying about how to make the next buck and survive to the next day. And that's a sad fact of uh, existence and not easy for everybody to get around, but uh, I love the the scope of what you're doing, and and that brings me to the next one, which is uh, Artists United for Amazonia, the live stream. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about how that came to be. Well, I you know a dear friend of mine, Atosa Sultani, who is a legendary uh, Amazon activist, uh, reached out to me uh, during the fire episode of, uh, 2019 that shocked the world where the Amazon was on fire. And in reality, the Amazon fires had been burning every year, but that was the, the moment where the world really took notice. And what that did is that triggered so much support for her and for Amazon watch, which she founded. And, and also Leila Salazar Lopez, who was the executive director of Amazon watch. They were, they were being so flooded with support that Atosa reached out and said, you know, John, there are all these people from the entertainment industry who want to help us. I don't even have time to answer their phone calls. Can you help us create? And we were talking about artists for the Amazon and we, we ultimately called it artists for Amazonia. So it wasn't confused with Amazon, the business. And so we started doing our first big thing that we did is we did a PSA with Joaquin Phoenix um, right at the peak of his Joker fame, the year he won the Oscar. It was released a few days before the Academy Awards. And then just after that, COVID hit. And we kind of thought we would be shut down because everything we were doing, we, we were having meeting live meetings at people's houses with artists, producers, directors, and then we just said, you know, maybe let's try a Zoom call to see if anyone shows up. And like so many people showed up, including a lot of famous people, because they were all sitting in their house that had nothing else to do. And right at that time, and, and of course, they were passionate about the issue. I don't want to minimize their passion for the issue, but it just was a very unique moment in time where people had the time to, to, to go on a Zoom call like that. And um, and but we were facing uh, the very real prospect of an ecocide in the Amazon because what was happening for indigenous peoples, what was happening is that the government was withdrawing their forces out of fear of 
whatever minimal protection there was for indigenous communities was being withdrawn because of fear of COVID, but the illegal miners and the others who were going in to exploit were still going in and the possibility of them spreading COVID to really uh, vulnerable communities was so strong. And, and so we thought, well, what can we do? And we thought, okay, well, let's do a webinar about this thread and maybe let's get, it's one of those stories. We are literally our first idea is let's see if we can get a high profile musical artist to do a song and we'll do a webinar about this potential ecocide calling for support for indigenous peoples in the Amazon from COVID. 28 days later, we had over 75 artists. The live stream was like three and a half hours long. We had about 15 legends, some of them you named. Everyone just said yes. And then we had people calling us that we didn't even invite legends to, to be part of this. It was really heartening. And um, the response to the show, Kid Thomas and Tayana David did a fantastic job directing the show and putting all the elements together. We had uh, about 20 indigenous leaders in addition to all of the artists. And you mentioned some of the, the names before, from, you know, from Greta Thunberg to Barbara Streisand. To Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall, uh, Carlos Santana, which that was a big thrill to talk with him and have a with him. Yeah, and all of that. And Jeff Bridges, Morgan Freeman narrated a beautiful opening for us. And so many names, Jane Fonda, Sting, Dave Matthews, so many names. I know I'm leaving out Peter Gabriel, um, Ricky Martin, and many, many others uh, came together for that. And what it did is it, is it led directly to a few hundred thousand dollars worth of funding, but really helped play a role in getting larger institutional funding in the millions of dollars for medical supplies, for crucial travel to get people to their villages safely, things like that. And it was um, it was a moment that gave me hope for the world because all of these huge names just said yes. And they figured it out. They recorded their stuff in their home studios. Oh, Una Chaplin was our host. She did a magnificent job for that. And um, it was it was one of those, uh, we called it a creative barn raising. The strata, we had literally 25 people reaching out to talent. And the idea was everyone just bring a piece, get bring one of your friends. And, um, and it worked. You know, it was... It was one of those moments, all for one moment. And um, unfortunately, we still lost some key indigenous leaders, but it it didn't reach the level that we feared. Uh, and some leaders like Chief Hayoni, the, the, the most legendary one who's in his 90s, he actually got COVID, but he survived it. Amazing. And um, but we were, you know, there were many things going on to support Indigenous people. We were one of them and a, a significant one. But, uh, and that was through the Amazon Emergency Fund, which was a unity fund where all these groups that had been working on the Amazon for decades came together in this moment of crisis. And I, I think it's just one of those examples of when we when we get beyond our silos, beyond our egos and this is the most important thing right now on the planet. We can accomplish great things. And 
Yeah, I was going to say, why don't you talk a little bit about the Amazon? I mean, and that probably leads us into the whole artist for Amazonia concept, but and what you're doing now. But uh, I think maybe people don't understand why the Amazon is important to people in America or Europe or any other place that well, that they may not well, see the connection. Sure. Yeah. It's, thank you. But I'm so deep into it. Well, the Amazon, people often call the Amazon the lungs of the planet. We refer to it more as the heart of the planet. It's like the heart pump of the res respiration of water flow. And so if we lose the capacity, if we lose the Amazon, and the Amazon is at a tipping point, scientists have said it is at a tipping point now, where if enough of it is destroyed, that the whole thing will collapse and become savanna. And so what these trees are doing is they're pumping water and moisture into the atmosphere. You have these things called flying rivers that then circulate around the world. So the severity of fires in California, in Australia, all, you know, all these places around the world, if this circulation of water flow is interrupted and decreased, then those fires become more extreme. And, you know, because we're in North America, we're closer to the Amazon than, than other parts of the world. There's impact there. I, I, I would refer to other experts to go into detail about how exactly that those flying rivers affect us, our croplands and things like that. But clearly there is a connection. And I often refer to the Amazon as the leading player in the climate drama. Because if we lose the Amazon, like certain things, sea level rise, things like that, things have been unleashed already and we're dealing with the consequences. But the destruction of the Amazon is something that we can actually stop now. It just requires political will and the enforcement of laws um, that are starting to be put into place in Brazil. You know, we, since Lula has gotten back in, he's been demarcating indigenous lands. Talk a little and, bit about him because it, he was by no means a shoe in and artist for Amazonia was there for him. Maybe you can talk a little about that. Well, I would just say that Bolsonaro, we had no hope of saving the Amazon as long as Bolsonaro was president of Brazil. And Lula and Marina Silva, who's the environmental minister, who many of us know, many of our allies know, I don't know her personally, but, um, and Sonia Guajajara, who's now the first indigenous people's minister. She's been in several of my aerial projects you know, so, I mean, this is how close it is. There's a real movement. Like Lula is, I can't say he's perfect, but there's a real movement for him to stick with his commitments. But now that's creating a backlash. And from agribusiness and Bolsonaro supporter and supporters in Congress, where they're trying to use this time trick called Marco Temporal to basically declare that unless indigenous people's lands were registered by, I think it was 1988, um, they can't be considered indigenous lands. So it's like basically trying to stop the demarcation of indigenous lands. Uh, and this is a big fight going on right now in the Supreme Court and the Senate that the, the Congress, the lower house in Brazil already passed this. So 
you know, we, you take one big step forward, which is getting Lula into power, but now you're dealing with the backlash and we have to just keep going. It's, 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 but, it's a constant battle. Yeah. But yeah. to tie it back to what we were just talking about a little while ago, the flying rivers, the hydrologic cycle that is right. such an important part of any animal plant existence is almost invisible to people. And you don't recognize its importance until an area has been desertified. And so when you no longer have ground cover and greenery to hold in moisture and to create this natural rhythm between the plants taking in oxygen and uh, putting out oxygen and taking in the carbon and doing the various things they do as part of the cycle, you don't realize that without that dense overgrowth and the, the cover of the trees and plants, you don't have natural cycles. And those atmospheric rivers literally go all over the world, like you said, and without them, other areas would be choked and dying and starved because the whole world is an ecosystem. It's not just the minor ecosystems in one location that work in harmony with the one next to them and the one next to them. Literally, the whole globe is connected. And this is why some people, I think, don't understand that the Amazon is one of the precious resources that is, as you say, the heart, because it's pumping out this incredibly vital atmospheric water flow, basically, that right. is critical to the entire world. And so you're right, of course, that if people like you and artists for Amazonia and others don't stand up, all the politics aside, there are not many places that have indigenous people who value the land. Most indigenous people have been crushed. And these people, fortunately, are still in existence and know how to preserve the environment. Um, a wonderful story on one of my other podcasts from Robin Henry Tennyson, who lived with the indigenous people in Brazil, talks about a river, a huge catch of fish from the river, and they're drying them and cooking them and eating them. And a couple of days later, Robin says to them, so when are we going to go fish again? And they said, in the fall. He said, hmm. but it's the spring. And he said, you caught so many fish. There's, you know, why wouldn't we go back? And they said, we'll wait till the fall. So there will be more and they hmm. can survive too. And this hmm. is the kind of, it's like the clash between civilization and the indigenous people. They understand the balance of nature. And we've lost that feeling. And people like Robin and you and others who are willing to protect it maybe protecting the whole planet and they other people don't even know it or appreciate it well i think you know you've hit on the it's and now it's been proven in a variety of ways that indigenous peoples are the best stewards way better of biodiversity and nature and you know so investing in them in allowing them to do it their way instead of trying to, you know, come in and control and dominate is going to be the most successful way that we maintain our global forest. And the thing about the Amazon is if we lose the Amazon, 
and the function that it's providing right now, we lose climate stability as well. We throw our global weather system into chaos in a way that none of us have ever known, um, you know, in through recorded human history. And so it's just, it seems so basic that this is the most urgent thing on the planet because it affects every single human. But we're dealing with this idea of progress and economic growth that has been a juggernaut for centuries. And so we need to, we need everyone on board. We need everyone on board to recognize that it affects all of us. It may seem far away. Some of us might tune in spiritually to it or to the human rights aspect of it, which is a huge thing because, of course, Earth defenders in the Amazon are under threat and many are being killed on a daily, weekly basis of truly heroic uh, beings standing up for the forest. This affects all of us and the future of life on this planet. And um, so for those of you who might not have been familiar with what's going on there, uh, there are so many resources, Amazon Watch, the, the, uh, which is my go-to in terms of the kind of actions that will actually make a difference, the work that they do on finance, <clears throat> you know, because we have to get at, at it economically. And um, and also with indigenous-led solutions. That is the thing, to have the humility to recognize that these are people who've understand, who have understood how to live in harmony with these ecosystems for eons. That's the humor and, of it, though. We, many people, feel like we're being beneficent, we're being kind to people who don't have all the modern and benefits and things we have and the humor of that is we're busy killing ourselves with all our modern benefits and they could live on and on and on if we just leave them be because they are living in harmony with nature we're not so learning from them and supporting them is so important and people don't mostly people don't see it for what it is and so it is really important for groups like artists for Amazonia, and of course the live stream and the other things you're doing. This is such an important time to get this word out because mm-hmm. we're, like you said, we're at that tipping point. It's it's now or never. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's it's so important that people. I mean, when I think about Old Glory, to come back to Old Glory, it's one tree, but. I do know that there was a young woman named Shawnee Badger who ended up helping to organize the 20 year anniversary when I climbed back into the tree last spring. She was nine years old when I was in the tree the first time. And I was very humbled when she said, you know, that tree sit and the actions that took place there changed my life. I became an activist because of it. And she's such a bright light and doing amazing things in the world. And so you just hope like all people really need to do is care enough to take one piece and you'd be surprised at the ripple effect. I know that that for me, uh, that that is, you know, come back to me so many times and you just do what you do and find the joy along the way. I mean, I think there's there's two jobs we have in life. One is to take a stand a principled stand for something you believe in. 
and the other is to celebrate life. Like both of them enrich life, improve the world, make us happier when we're happier. The world's a better place. <clears throat> and so just find your tree, find that peace that you really care about, and then go with grace in um, taking a stand on behalf of that. And of course, they're all connected, every one of them. So you, you can pick your one, your favorite one, because eventually and in many ways, every living thing is connected. And this is the message I hope people will draw from this uh, important conversation. John, I, I really appreciate the time, the wisdom, the amazing history. Um, thank you for, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Listen, David, thank you. If you don't mind, could I just acknowledge a couple of people about Absolutely. Old Glory? I really need to acknowledge Lynn Plambeck, um, who runs an organization called Scope, who is fighting for oak trees every day. And she was such a key ally in this. Cynthia Harris, who uh, is one of the leaders at the Santa Clarita Oaks Conservancy. And uh, and Barbara Wampole, who is Tom Barron's wife, who I referenced Tom earlier, who who helped in so many ways and has th these three women were three of my heroes who just were champions for the nature. I would have never met Old Glory if it weren't for the three of them. And we would have never saved that tree if it weren't for their tireless passion. So I want to just say thank you to them. Yes, of course. And as important as that tree is it's one of millions and as important as each one of us are and you of course and the, all the people you've mentioned throughout this are important but again we're just one of millions we need to join together and mm. like you said despite the politics and everything else now is the time so anyway thank you so much for your your message and your incredible activism all these years it's a pleasure to know you thank you david it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.